Well, good morning, good morning brother. and welcome. I am uh, thrilled to be up here this morning to share from God's Word. Um, this morning, we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, in fact, we're going to look at the second half of the book of Nehemiah. Last week, we considered Nehemiah chapter 1 to 6, and this week, we're going to consider chapter 7 to 13. Now, I'd like to ask you a question, and I'll, I'll field an answer from you if anyone would like to take a stab at it. I'm going to say that today is a very special day for a particular reason. Um, think in terms of Scripture. Think of where we are in the Scripture. Uh, you'll have to be a Bible scholar of sorts to be able to answer this question, but today is a special day. We're in Nehemiah chapter 7 to 13. Thinking in terms of Scripture, thinking in terms of Old Testament history, does anyone want to take a guess as to why they think today is a special day uh, in the Scriptures? Well, I'm going to give you an answer if there's no one that wants to take a guess, and that is that we are at the very end of Old Testament history, the very end of Old Testament history. So um, we could have had another lesson, maybe from the book of Malachi, but thinking in terms of Old Testament history, this is going to be the very last lesson uh, from our series in the Old Testament. Now, I went back, if you're curious to know, I went back to look to see when we began our Old Testament series, right? We consecutively, if you didn't know that, we consecutively go through the scriptures here, uh, one section at a time, not always one chapter at a time, but one section at a time. We began in Genesis chapter 1. And we carry through. Now, first, I'm going to say this. Uh, some of you may be confused right now because you're going, wait a minute, Nehemiah. Uh, I don't, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I know there's a lot of books that come after Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Well, we'll get to that, and I'll explain that a little bit further. But back to what I was saying before. So I went back to look. You know when we began Genesis chapter 1? I bet nobody knows the answer to this question. We began Genesis chapter 1 on December 31st of 2011. 2011. So here we are. Uh, it was Dr. Tony Martin as they went back and scrolled. You can go on to sermon.net if you have the app. That's where our, our uh, sermons get posted. And you can scroll all the way back to December 31st, 2011, when we began Genesis chapter 1. So we're about seven years into our series here in the Old Testament. Keep in mind that we've had a lot of breaks along the way. We've had a lot of visiting speakers that have come in and picked up different things, which has been wonderful as well. But we do try to go in a consecutive series through the Old Testament um, or whatever it is that we're considering. I think we're going to start the book of Acts coming up very soon. And so here we are in the last lesson of Old Testament history, the very last lesson of Old Testament history, and it is the second half of the book, Nehemiah. Now, I'm going to give you just very briefly a bird's eye view of Old Testament. I mean, okay, if we're here at the very last section, we should have, at least we should want to have some idea of where we've come from, right? So here's a very quick bird's eye view. Of course, the Old Testament has got a lot in it, but here's a bird's eye view, and hopefully the font is big enough to see. So we began in Genesis, of course, the scriptures begin in Genesis, and you've got creation, the flood, and the calling of Abraham. Okay, so Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. That's going to be the beginning of the nation of Israel. And then Genesis continues out finishing the family of Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, one of which was Joseph. Joseph was cast aside by his brethren. He was thrown into a pit, sold off into slavery. He then rose to power through a series of very miraculous events. And he ended up in Egypt at the right hand of Pharaoh. 
uh, uh, Jacob and, his, and Joseph's brothers then come to Egypt. They join Joseph there, and that's how they get into the land of Egypt. Remember, because then we go from uh, Genesis to Exodus, we find them enslaved in Egypt. Well, what happened, you know, many of you at least I know, know that they were there in the land of Egypt because Joseph was in power. But eventually, as the family grew and grew and grew, they became a threat, a threat to the people of Egypt. And so Pharaoh enslaved them. And of course, that's a very quick summary of, uh, of a couple thousand years of history. So they're enslaved in Egypt, but you know that in Exodus, they're delivered, right? We serve a God that is a God of deliverance, a God of deliverance. And he delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And that story is told in Exodus, not to get into too many of those details. Then you go Leviticus, Leviticus to Deuteronomy, and you could summarize it by saying it's the law and the wilderness wanderings. Remember, God would give the law and then uh, the children of Israel would wander in the wilderness for a period of time before finally in Joshua, they enter into the promised land, right? God had promised a land to the children of Israel, and then in Joshua, they enter into the promised land. That takes us to the judges where they're in the promised land, but remember, they did not drive out all the enemies like God had asked them to, God had commanded them to. So they're in the promised land, but they're having all kinds of problems. Other nations around them are like a thorn in their flesh, so to speak. They continue to have trouble. And uh, so God would raise up judges. As the, ch- as the children of Israel would struggle and they would fall into sin, God would raise up a judge to again deliver them. And that happened one after the next. You remember some like Gideon and Deborah and Samson. These were the judges. This was the time of the judges. And, and by the way, we're, we've crossed a lot of years of history. We're getting close here. So then... First and second Samuel, you'll remember we transitioned from judges, you could call Samuel the last judge, to the time of the kings. Remember there was the first king, you remember his name? Anybody remember the first king of Israel? Saul, that's right. So they said, give us a king. They, they didn't want that old that system that was going on there, the, the rising up of judges, give us a king. And so God gave them Saul. And then, of course, Uh, to follow Saul was David and so forth. That takes us into the kings and chronicles. So now we have the kings reigning in Israel all the way to the captivity. Now the captivity was when they were carried away. They were carried away. Why? Well, primarily because of sin. Because during the reign of the kings, there was wickedness. There was perversion. They didn't follow the law of God. They didn't keep his commandments. They didn't obey. And so that took them, the kings took them all the way up to to the point where God allowed pagan kings to come in from other nations and carry them away into captivity. So that's where they were. Then we come to our section, kind of broadly speaking, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and we come to this time where there is a returning. So they were taken away into captivity because of the wickedness. Now God is allowing them to come back after this period of captivity And there's going to be this time of return to the land. There's going to be a time of rebuilding because there was some destruction done in the city of Jerusalem uh, by the pagan kings, by the pagan armies. And so they're going to return. They're going to rebuild. And then also in Nehemiah, we're going to consider some of reforming. So that's it, brothers and sisters. That's, of course, a bird's eye view of just a course of history of several thousand years from maybe approximately 4,000 B.C. all the way to 430 B.C. when we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah. That's the end of Old Testament history. 
And then, of course, you know that there was 400 years of silence, so to speak. They're, they're often called, referred to as the silent years, approximately, right? We had 430, so that's about when the Old Testament history ended. And then about 400 years of silence, and then you know what comes next. Good tidings of great joy to all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so that would bring us to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I wanted to do that briefly, especially, I think it's good if we could do it every week, but it's very difficult because we run out of time. But especially since we're in the last lesson of Old Testament history, I wanted to take a moment. Now, this is just, okay, so back to my other question, which was some of you may be saying, well, I'm confused because Nehemiah, I know, I don't know all the books, but I know there's lots of books that follow Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Well, what has happened? Well, if you follow the center part, oh, I thought I might have a, uh, a light on this. I don't. But you follow the center section here, Genesis, Exodus, all the way through to Nehemiah. You see it abbreviated there. Then That's the history, okay? But then these other books are being written throughout that time period. At the top, you have prophets, right? You, you know, right after Nehemiah, there's some Psalms and Proverbs, and then there's all these prophetical books. Well, the pro- prophetical books were being written during that time period. So those aren't continued history. Those are prophets that were writing to the children of Israel during the points and times that they were there. Um, and, of course, you then have also poetic books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Well, we know that David and Solomon and men like that wrote these books. Well, when did they live? Well, they lived during the time of the kings and the books of the Chronicles. So, and, of course, Second uh, Samuel as well. So we do also know that those books were being written. So I'm showing this, I hope, just to show you that this center section, which is nice and neat and organized, those are the historical books. That's a timeline of history from maybe about 4,000 at creation to uh, 430 approximately when Nehemiah ended. And then all the other books of the Old Testament, where do they fit in? Well, they were being written during that time of history. So that brings us through to the book of Nehemiah. Now, the book of Nehemiah is, as we saw from the first slide, let me just go back to that briefly. Uh, it's a lot of clicking, sorry. Okay, so Nehemiah, the, the book is mainly regarding, if someone were to ask you, and you want to know for your own memory, the main idea of the book of Nehemiah is the building of the wall of Jerusalem, right? We know that from last week. That's the big picture. That's the big idea. It's a time of returning to the land from captivity, rebuilding, renewing, reforming. We're going to consider some of that. So back to where we were. Okay. So I'm going to give you an outline for the book, if you like outlines. I'm going to tell you up front, this is not my outline. You can thank uh, Mr. Ryrie. Mr. Ryrie has a a study Bible, and he likes alliterations. I like alliterations where um, a group or section of of, um, verbiage all starts with the same letter or the same sound. That's what an alliteration is. So he likes alliterations. So he he says that the first seven chapters are regarding specifically rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, Then chapters 8 to 10 are renewing of the covenant. And then he says that the uh, last uh, chapters, uh, uh, 11, 12, and 13, the last three chapters are regarding specifically the reforming of the nation. So big picture, the walls of Jerusalem are being rebuilt. But if you wanted to break it down, that's how it could be broken down. He gives lots of other R's there if you like this. Uh, A return to Jerusalem, rebuilding of the walls, register of the people, uh, reading of the law, 
uh, response of the people, ratification of the covenant, repopulating of the cities, rededicating of the wall, and reforms of the people. That's a lot of R's. I know that. That's a lot to remember. But there is a structure to the book. There's no doubt about it as the Spirit of God works through Nehemiah to write these things. So that is kind of a big picture outline. Last week we considered chapters 1 to 6. Today we're going to consider chapters 7 to 12. Now, as is often the case, even having taken seven years to get through the Old Testament, we take some big passages of Scripture. So there's no way that we could go verse by verse and cover every single word of chapters 7 uh, through uh, 12. Or actually, there's a 13th chapter, is there not? But nonetheless, that may be off by a chapter. So I want to give you some key phrases, and this is kind of what we're going to focus on as we go through. I've taken, I trust by the Spirit of God, one key phrase from each chapter that I hope to build upon and then uh, to teach lessons from the Word of God. One other thing by way of introduction. The book of Nehemiah is a tremendous story of God taking an ordinary man to do extraordinary supernatural things. I hope you followed that. This is tremendously encouraging to me. The book of Nehemiah, or the story that's laid out in Nehemiah, is God taking an ordinary man. Are you an ordinary person? Well, I don't know. That's up to you to decide. But I'm an ordinary man. God took an ordinary man, Nehemiah. He was no prophet. He was no priest. He was no king. He was not a scribe. He was a servant of a pagan king a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And God would call him an ordinary man to do some very extraordinary things, to bring about the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem that had been leveled by the prior pagan kings. This is a tremendous story. I heard a story told just recently, and it was very encouraging to me. A story from 1945. And it goes like this. There was a man named Tory Johnson. Some of you may have heard his name. He was a director of Youth for Christ Ministries. And a very well-known man, apparently, a very well-known evangelist. And he was called uh, by a particular group, I think a high school, to come and to preach to the young people there. And uh, he wasn't able to make it for whatever the reason. But he told uh, the people calling him, he said, listen, I have a, a young man I want to send to you to uh, preach that day, but I can't make it myself. And uh, they said, well, who is he? And he said, well, he's Billy Graham. Billy Graham was just 27 at the time. Uh, and so the people said, well, we've never heard of him. We, we want you, Tori, to come and to preach. And he said, I can't come, but I, I implore you, like, let this young man come and preach. And uh, they were resistant, but eventually they agreed. So the story goes that Billy Graham went and he preached to these young people and he would return as he was a full-time evangelist now for Youth for Christ under Tory Johnson. And Tory Johnson would say to him something to the effect of, well, how did it go there, Billy? And Billy, being a young man and, 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 and trying to judge what happened, he said, well, it, it didn't go very well. Um, but there was one young man who made a profession of faith. And Tory Johnson said to him, well, <clears throat> did you get the young man's name uh, for prayer and follow-up? And he said, I did. His name was Warren Wearsby. Yeah. 
So if you look up Warren Wearsby, if you don't know who that is, he's a prolific writer, written over 150 books, was the pastor of Moody Church. He went on to do tremendously amazing, great things for God. Here was, I know you may not consider Billy Graham an ordinary young man, but he was just a 27-year-old young man. And here he went out and preached to a group of youth. And there in that crowd, if you look up Warren Wearsby, you'll see he credits his conversion to a preaching, not a mass preaching, from what I understood, just a group of young people, but there he was converted under the preaching of the gospel of Billy Graham, a 27-year-old evangelist. So God doing great things by using ordinary people, and that's the story of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1 would say this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has cho- chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. This is the God we serve. He's calling you. He's calling me. Ordinary people, indeed. But to be used for extraordinary things, to do supernatural things. Why? Because he is, as Nehemiah said, you are the great God of heaven and earth in chapter 1. That was his prayer. O great God, of heaven and earth. So that's really, uh, in a sense, of course, there's lots in Nehemiah, but it is a story of God using an ordinary man to do extraordinary things. Now, Nehemiah chapter 7, and Nehemiah chapter 7, and we're going to read the first few verses of that. Nehemiah chapter 7, and many of you are probably already there, as you should be. It says this in verse 1. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors... When the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. Now, okay, so first of all, then it was when the wall was built. David reminded us last week in chapter 6 and verse 15, says these words. So the wall was finished. So here we are. Nehemiah came. He called the people. They began working. And after 52 days, according to the scripture, they had rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. So it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers and singers and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So Nehemiah is going to take basically the reins, so to speak. He is willing to take uh, his leadership and transition it to a few others. You know, it's a wonderful thing in the work of the Lord to see a successful transition of leadership. That is probably, and I I don't travel to lots of different churches, but from what I've heard from a lot of different itinerant workers and full-time workers, one of the biggest struggles um, in the, the churches of God, in the assemblies, is successful transition of leadership. Successful transition of leadership. Uh, it requires at least two things, you know. Listen to what it says here. It says, For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So transition of leadership successfully in a God-honoring and God-glorifying way requires at least two things. It requires godly men who are willing to uh, invest in, train up, give over to younger men, the leadership, but it requires young men and women who are faithful and fear God. So we need godly men, and I thank God that I believe we have godly men here that want to see young men raised up and young women raised up to take leadership, to take uh, initiative in the work of God. We don't want a one-man show here. 
We don't want a two-man show here. We don't want a four-man show here. This is the body of Christ. We want to see uh, men and women that are faithful and fear God because we're going to find out that there were some who shouldn't have been there. And Nehemiah removes them. But if they are faithful and fear God, oh, young men, young women, will God call us, will God move in us to be faithful, to fear God? There's a great work that needs to be done. Uh, the elders are only getting older. You know, those in the next, next generation, wonderful people, carrying on the work of the Lord. But I know they, and I know the Lord, want each of us to put our hands to the work, to take responsibility for the work of God. And so there's a transition of leadership there as Nehemiah is called to do something else. So he says, I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So what we have here is uh, Nehemiah's command to them to keep watch of a finished work. Keep watch, guard a work that has been completed. Do you know that there's a very similar calling in the New Testament? a very similar calling, uh, especially to the leaders of churches, to the elders of churches. Take heed to the flock of God, it says uh, in Acts chapter 20. Take heed to the flock of God over which God has made you an overseer. There's a calling of God because there is a work that has been completed, a work at Calvary, similar to the wall being completed. The Lord Jesus Christ finished the work there, but it is upon the people of God to keep watch, to keep guard. Because, uh, well, he'll say in Acts chapter 20, he says in Acts chapter 20, these words. He says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. It's a very important role of church leaders, mainly of elders, but of really each of us to be cautious. You know, when people come through the doors, uh, we want to receive them, we want to welcome them, but we need to be cautious as well to know uh, what are their motives, what are they here for. Uh, we have had people come through these doors many times who are not here because they love the same Lord Jesus that we love because they hold fast to the word of God as we seek to hold fast to the word of God. And so there's a caution there. Nehemiah tells them to, uh, uh, to keep watch uh, over a finished work and over, of course, the people that were there. Now it says this in verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. So here he has... Uh, a temple from Ezra, from Ezra's days that has been rebuilt, at least to some degree, a wall that has been rebuilt, a spacious city, but he says the people in it are few and the houses are not rebuilt. Brothers and sisters, the work of God will never be about a particular place or building. It is always about the people of God always about the people of God. God is not, there's, this is not uh, the work that he was doing then and even the work to, to this day, I should say, even the work he was doing then, the fact that there was a temple and all of these things, it was still about the people of God, the people of God. We've been called, haven't we? 
Beloved, let us love one another. For, for, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. We should, be, we should care about one another. We should care about people. We should be concerned about people. Yes, we have a space here that God has given us to gather together, but it'll never be about this building. It'll never be, that'll never be the main focus is uh, beautifying or, or renovating or whatever it is. It'll always be about the benefit of the Lord's people and the glory of God. And so Nehemiah is concerned because here they have a large city, spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. There's so much more that we could say about that. Um, some time ago, Dr. Humphreys put up a cartoon and uh, it was a Charlie Brown cartoon. And uh, he was being chided there by his, his friend. And um, he said, uh, he said uh, uh, I love people. Or he said, I love mankind, but it's just people that I can't stand. And that's often true, you know. They're like mankind as a whole, we love mankind. But it's just the people, those individual people that tend to drive us nuts, that tend to, tend to bother us. But God's calling, the Lord Jesus Christ came, the good shepherd came to lay down his life for the sheep. For the sheep, he loved people. That was his main calling. May the Lord help us to love one another, to edify one another, to build one another up. That's what we're called to do. So then he says this, and this is my key phrase in chapter 7. Then my God put it into my heart. Then my God put it into my heart. First thing I notice is he said these words, my God, my God. My question to you today, is he your God? Now, throughout Nehemiah, he'll say the God or the Lord God. He'll call him our God. And then at other times, like here in chapter 7, he's going to say the words, my God. What a tremendous thing to be able to call God my God. Friends, if you're here today and you do not know, do not know God in a personal way, he is still the God. He is the Lord God of heaven and earth, but he may not be your God. My question to you today, is he your God? Nehemiah could say he is my God. There is a personal relationship there, a joy of knowing him in an intimate way. The Lord Jesus Christ himself would say of God, uh, my father is working until now. He could say my father. Uh, Recently in this last election, you know, uh, there were obviously many people that were not happy with the results, as with many elections. But one of the things that we saw, and I'm sure you saw it too, was people carrying signs that said, not my president, not my president. He may be the president, but he's not my president. You see what they've done? They've distanced themselves. He may be the president, but he's not mine. I don't align myself with him. This was their claim. I'm just using it as as an illustration because I think there are many people, I know there are many people in the world and many people even in the church that know that he is the God, but he's not my God. He's not their God. They don't know him in a personal way. The Lord Jesus Christ would call people, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto the church? Not exactly. Come unto even the scriptures? Not exactly. But he would say, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know him as your God? Is he your God or is he just the God? Well, I know he's the God. He is the great God of heaven and earth. Nehemiah would proclaim that in chapter one. But is he your God? Nehemiah could say, my God. But he says this, my God 
put it into my heart. And boy, the Lord stopped me there when I read that. Is the Lord God putting things into my heart that concern the people of God? Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he loved the church. Not the building, but the people. He loved the church. That's the people. And he gave himself for it. Do I love the Lord's people? Is Here Nehemiah is, and, and the burden is concerning the people. He's going to then go to, to, to a list of genealogy because he wants to know who is actually there. But his burden concerned the people of God. It concerned the lack of the people of God in the city of God. God had put it into his heart. And my question to you is, my question to me is, what has God been putting into my heart? Has God been putting burdens on your heart? Are you walking with the Lord in such a way that God is laying things upon your heart that he would have you to do by his spirit, by his word? I'm not talking about some fruity experience, but I'm saying, has God, is God burdening your heart for his people as you look around? You see people that, that need help, that need encouragement. You see new believers that need to grow. You see elderly believers that need a hand or whatever it is. Is God burdening your heart? Here was a man, Nehemiah, who could say, my God, put it into my heart. God had laid a burden upon him. Oh, brothers and sisters, the, 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 the church of God needs people that are burdened for the work of God. And it always has to do with the people of God and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Is God putting burdens onto your heart? If you're sitting here and you're saying, well, goodness gracious, and I'm not putting you on the spot, but this is just our own examination. This is what the word of God, it's good for doctrine, reproof, for correction. If you're sitting here and saying, my goodness, I don't know when the last time is that the Lord has put anything on my heart, any concern for others, maybe my own children or whatever, to my spouse. Hmm. I wonder what the relationship is like. We need to be walking with the Lord, looking into his word. We're going to see that later so that God can be putting things into our heart, burdens for him, for his people, for the edification of his people, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church is, brothers and sisters. We're here uh, to ultimately, right in the book of Acts, they came together for, for teaching the apostles' doctrine, for breaking bread, for fellowship, for prayer. Everything had to do with the people of God and lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It's pretty simple. Do you love the Lord's people? Do you love the Lord Jesus himself and want to see him lifted up? May the Lord help us that we would be burdened like Nehemiah was. So he goes on. We can't read through the whole chapter, but he uh, gives a genealogy there. And, um, you know, it's interesting that throughout the book of Nehemiah and throughout the scriptures, the Lord keeps meticulous records. We heard that last week. Here he goes, name by name, of listing all the people that are there. Brothers and sisters, do you feel at times as though God has forgotten about you? I can tell you as you look at the scriptures, God keeps meticulous records. The Lord Jesus Christ promised in Matthew chapter 6, he said, uh, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. Did you know that? Your heavenly Father, if you know him as God, he knows you. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, uh, I, I, I call my own sheep by name. The shepherd calls his own sheep by name. Did you know that? He knows you by name. Throughout scripture, we see that the Lord keeps meticulous records. But for someone, now that's a comfort to the Christian, right? I need to know that. I need to know that God has not forgotten about me. He knows my name. He knows what things I have need of. 
but for the unbeliever. You know what it says in Hebrews chapter 4? It says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things lay naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's the truth of Scripture. That, that, that we have not escaped the sight of God. Praise God as believers because we need that comfort. But to those who would reject God, who would put him off, oh friends, he keeps meticulous records. He knows your name. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things lay naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is the truth of Scripture. He's a God of detail, a God of meticulous records. Well, you read through Matthew chapter 6 in that section, and you read about how he even uh, keeps track of the sparrows that fall from the sky, the hairs from our head. Uh, This is the God that we serve. So there is that uh, genealogy there. And again, as I mentioned before briefly, you will see in uh, uh, verse 64 of chapter 7, we've, li- we've skipped a lot of names there, but it says this, these sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. So there were some that were not found there. Their names were not found written there. Oh, I tell you, there's going to be many in that day, the Lord Jesus says, who says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? But he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Your name is not found written there. And I would take this also in a practical way to the believer. Do we keep meticulous records? I mean, do we take time on occasion to take inventory? That's really what Nehemiah was doing. He was taking an inventory of the people. Do we take inventory in the the assembly, this church of God, to, to consider what activities are going on, what things are happening? What about in our own families? You know, I have five kids now, and I can see as they grow that things tend to sneak into the home that I didn't even know were there. Somehow they come in with these thoughts, these ideologies, sometimes they come in with devices. They come in with different things that, that wow, I, I, I've got I've to take inventory of what's going on here. I need to address these things. Perhaps there are some things, like in Nehemiah's day, that need to be excluded, that need to be kept out. And in my own heart, in my own life, 1 Corinthians 11 says, so let a man examine himself. Will we take ex- uh, an examination of our own hearts, of our own lives, to see are there things there that need to be put out, that need to be excluded? Well, that's what Nehemiah found, is there were some there who needed to be kept out. And that, my friends, is chapter 7 of uh, 13 chapters. So we're going to have to pick up the pace. There is this phrase in chapter 8, and of all the key phrases, this is probably my favorite. Bring the book, they said. Bring the book, they said. It says this in chapter 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord God had commanded Israel. Here were the people of God, after a great work of God, after seeing the example of Nehemiah, a great leader who humbly served the people, humbly did the work of God, but called upon others to join him. And here they were, it says, as one man, What a tremendous verse this is. Think about this, brothers and sisters. All of the people gathered together in unity as one man. And what do they want? Bring the book. Bring the book. Bring the book. The word of God is so, so important to our day-to-day lives. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. In fact, there's a verse or two prior to that. 
that are so key that I want to read to you. This is Second uh, Timothy, and I hope I've got that right. Three and verse 14 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, you could stop right there and say, What things had Timothy heard of? What were things that he had learned? I mean, was it, uh, was it business models? Was it business plans? Was it uh, the sports? Was it, what was it? Was it good morals? What had he learned? Well, he tells us. And that from childhood, he says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You have known the holy scriptures. We cannot minimize the importance of the Holy Scriptures in our assembly, in our church gathering, and in our own personal lives. The Scriptures are absolutely necessary. If you find yourself struggling, floundering, discouraged, whatever it may be, you need the book, brothers and sisters. I think if you were to sit with our elders for counseling, one of the first things that's going to come out is you need the book. Let's bring the book. First of all, we have no counsel for you apart from the book. Second of all, our only answers are in the book. You need the book because you need the answers. So bring the book was the cry of the people. We cannot minimize the importance of the word of God. But it's not just hearing it. It says, Ezra the priest brought the law before the, whole, before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding. He read from it, verse 3, in the open square. Verse 4 says, Ebra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and he had many men beside him, kind of supporting him. Verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. So they had a desire for the word of God. The people would cry, bring the book. They had also a reverence for the word of God. When, when Ezra would open the word of God to begin reading, it says all the people stood up. Well, when do we stand up? I mean, if the president were to walk into the room, I think we would all probably stand up, right? It's an act of reverence. They reverence the book. But it says this furthermore in verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave sense and helped them understand the reading. They were, uh, previously it said they were attentive to the word of God. I missed that one. In verse 8 it says they understood the word of God. All of this is necessary. We need to have a desire for the book. We need to have a reverence for the book, for the word of God. We need to be attentive to the book. We need to understand the book. And frankly, brothers and sisters, it takes time. It takes time. The Lord Jesus is calling for us to, to make that sacrifice. This was a sacrifice for the people of God. They, he read, I, I believe it was for half the day. Verse 3 says, from morning until midday. Morning until midday. Well, our time is fast approaching here. We don't often have six-hour sermons or six-hour readings from the scriptures. It takes time. I'm not saying you're going to be here for six hours today, but I'm just saying that the scriptures take time in order to understand them, in order to digest them. It takes time, and it takes, of course, sacrifice because that's the... The biggest problem with, with finding time is the sacrifice. So they understood the book. Then it says this, uh, it says this in verse uh, 9. At the very end of the verse, it says, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They not only understood it, 
but they allowed the word of God to convict them. You know, we can hear the word of God, but we can uh, kind of push it off. Or we could, let me just, yeah, that was convicting, but let me just put that off. They, the people of God allowed it to convict them. As the book was opened, as it was read, it says that the people wept. Oftentimes, that's what the reading of the word of God will do, especially meditation on the word of God. If you'll take the time, if I'll take the time to read it, to understand it, it will oftentimes bring conviction. It may even bring weeping like they wept. There was conviction. Why? Because it is profitable, we read in 2 Timothy 3, for doctrine, for reproof. Well, we know what reproof is, right? We're being told we're wrong. For correction, that is to fix what we're doing wrong. And oftentimes that will bring great uh, sorrow because we'll understand that we've been wrong in whatever the area is that the Lord is, is working on our hearts. So he says this in verse 10 to them, though. Quite interesting. He says, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to restoration. Restoration leads to joy. Okay? So it is never God's desire for us to remain in a place of sorrow. Oh, I just can't believe that I've done it again. I, well, that's a beginning point because God does desire a broken and a contrite spirit, but it doesn't end there. That's not the ending. Godly sorrow doesn't end at that point. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, repentance to restoration, restoration to joy. And so he says to them, uh, do not weep for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, every week we come here, uh, the first thing on Sunday morning to remember the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done at Calvary. And uh, if you've been here, and I know that many of you have, and if you've entered into it by the Spirit of God, if you've allowed yourself to consider what was accomplished there, I think you're often going to find these two emotions. There is sorrow in a sense, right? Because look at what the Lord Jesus Christ endured on my behalf. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was mocked. And here I am, right? We sing oftentimes, two wonders I confess. The wonder of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. Here I am, worthless, a sinner, I was far off from God. I was undeserving of his grace. It would bring a measure of, of weeping of sorrow. But there's always joy. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ procured for us our salvation. He died, yes, endured suffering, buried, was risen again, seated at the right hand of God, and he is victorious. There is joy at the cross. There is joy, the joy of the Lord. Because why? Because of what he's done because of where he's brought me. Did I deserve it? No, I didn't. Am I a sinner? Indeed I am. Does it bring a measure of sorrow to my heart? It should. But there's always joy to come from that. If, if you'll allow that godly sorrow to lead you to repentance, when, the Lord, when God burdens you about sin, as the people were burdened, they said, they recognized, we're gonna, we were wrong, we weren't doing this, we weren't following the word of God. Allow that 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 a sorrow to lead to repentance, repentance to restoration with the Lord, and there will be joy because, because of who he is, because of what he's done. So uh, this was the word of God to them in that day. And finally, uh, they not only understood it, they not only allowed it to convict them, but uh, they obeyed the word of God. Look at what it says. Okay? 
in verse 14 of chapter 8, and they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, uh, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. It says in verse 17, so the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, and they sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. So here they find in the word of God, there's something that I haven't done. God has given me a commandment and I haven't been doing it. Well, 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 what do we do next? Do we hear the word of God and turn away from it? You know that James chapter 1 or 2 commands us. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. They not only heard the word of God, they allowed it to penetrate their being, their spirit. It led to sorrow. It led to repentance. And when they found areas that they had disobeyed the Lord, they made a commitment. I'm going to follow the Lord. Here's what he's told us to do. Well, friends, I guess we better go build some booths because this is what the scripture says. And so they obeyed the word of God. If we don't follow the process all the way through, we suffer great loss, great loss. If we don't allow the word of God to take us through that process all the way through, uh, 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 from hearing it, taking the time to be attentive, understanding it, letting it penetrate, leading us to sorrow, to repentance, confession, then to obedience, we're going to suffer great loss. This is the basics of the Christian life. I know that many of you know this. This is very basic from the word of God. We need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So there's lot, a lot more that we could say. Um, the Lord Jesus himself, think about this. He quoted Old Testament scripture. Read through it time and time again. I counted about 45 times that the Lord Jesus in his interaction quoted Old Testament scripture. What's the point? The Lord Jesus knew the book. When he was a young man, you remember in Luke chapter 2, I believe, or Luke chapter 1 or 2, here he is amidst the religious leaders. And, and well, what happened? They were, they were amazed at his understanding. His understanding of what? Oh, his understanding, no doubt, of the scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ knew the scriptures. When he was tempted, he came back with the word of God. When the disciples asked him questions, like Matthew 19, they asked him about divorce and remarriage. You know where he took them to? Back to Genesis chapter 2. Went back to the scriptures. The Lord Jesus, time and time again, came back to the word of God. How would we understand so many of the things in the scriptures, or so many of the things in the New Testament scriptures, if we have no idea of what's happened in the Old Testament? Don't be discouraged. I'm not trying to discourage you, but I'm trying to encourage you to, I hope, as Nehemiah did, motivate us to get back into the word of God, to read it on our own. Once a week on Sunday is not nearly enough, I can assure you of that. I mean, I have no verse for that, but I can tell you that absolutely once a week on Sunday is not enough. We need the word of God. We need to be moved by it. The Lord Jesus himself was a man of the book. Paul quoted the Old Testament. There are so many things there. We could go on and on. Just very quickly, I'm just going to give you these key phrases because we're out of time. It says in chapter 9, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Tremendous prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9. Chapter 10, it says these entered into an oath to walk in God's law. There was a commitment, a decisive, hey, for married couples, I know for my wife and I, 
we have to talk about it. If we're going to make a commitment to do something, or I should say it this way, if I'm going to make a change to do something, we need to sit down and take it seriously. We need to talk about this, and we need to make a commitment. Things don't happen by accident, right? You don't just happen to show up here on Wednesday for the prayer meeting. I don't, we don't just happen to show up here uh, on Sunday. We have to plan for it. There has to be a commitment to the Lord, to his calling, to what he wants from us, to his people, to his gathering, if we're going to have it. There must be and a commitment. Though the people took it very seriously, and they entered into an oath to walk in God's law. It says the people blessed all the men in chapter 11, verse 2, who willingly offered themselves. There were those men who willingly uh, uh, put themselves back in the city despite the great sacrifice. And I don't have time to explain all of that, but they did. It was a tremendous thing. Chapter 12, verse 43, I love this phrase. The joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you've been encouraged to be a joyful people. If you've been convicted, then repent. But understand this. God forgives. If we confess our sins, he says in 1 John chapter 1, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that should lead to joy. There should be joy among the Lord's people. This was a big one for me. Uh, I tend to be somewhat stoic. You know, I can, I can just kind of carry on with a kind of a minimal amount of joy. But there should be joy. The joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off as all the people gathered to sing at the dedicating of the wall. It's a tremendous thing. And then chapter 13, uh, there was a separation. Uh, there was continued work uh, among the Lord's people. And you want to know something? The work of God is never finished, right? I mean, we are being called to work until his return. There is no time where we sit back and just rely. Even in chapter 13, after all these wonderful things that had happened, there was still work to be done. And so they continued on there. Well, I trust that the Lord has blessed us from his word and helped us and encouraged us. Um, It's been a tremendous blessing to me. And uh, as we close out the Old Testament series, I trust that we've learned some things from the scriptures. We need to know them, but we need to hear them, understand them, apply them, and do them. Uh, according to God's will. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to be able to know you, whom to know is life eternal, to open the words of your book. We know that your word tells us all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I hardly can even understand what that means, but I'm so grateful that you've given us your word that we can read it that we can take it in, we can understand it, we can repent where we need to repent, and we can proceed. Oh God, help us to do this as individuals, as a church, that we would love you more and more. If we need to rededicate, rededicate as the people to recommit to you, help us, Lord, to do this for your honor and glory. We want to serve you, Lord, and we want your blessing. Like the people in Nehemiah's day, we want others to look and to say, that is a work of God. That is a work of God. Oh God, we pray that would be so. Not of us, but of you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name.